Hello, it's Thursday, March the 17th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. We're going to tell you why, according to a major new report, a quarter of us worry about money every single day. Vladimir Putin, in an extraordinary performance when he spoke to the nation on TV, called for self-purification to rid his country of anyone who questions his invasion of Ukraine. And he was pretty rude about the oligarchs too. Is China going to come to the aid of Putin and provide economic, financial and even military support? But first, we've got to start on the best news of the year. Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, who was detained in Iran for almost six years, has returned home for a tearful reunion with her husband Richard and daughter Gabriella. So finally, Nazneen is home. After six years, many of the years in Iran in prison, she landed at RAF Bryce Norton in the early hours of today following a eight-hour flight from Oman. Uh, she was met at the airport by her husband, Richard, and seven-year-old daughter, Gabriella. So we're all very excited for them, but I wonder what significance it is. I'm joined now by Yasmin Ahmed, who's UK Director of Human Rights Watch. Yasmin, we're all thrilled that she's back, but I was a bit taken aback that she was accompanied back on that plane journey by another person, Anush Ashuri, if I pronounce that correctly. I didn't even know he was in prison in Iran. And we know there's still another person has been freed from prison, but is still being incarcerated in Iran. Is that because there was such a media campaign around Nazneen? That's the reason we knew? Well, look, I certainly think that's the case, that there's been a... Uh... Uh, particularly um, a really concerted effort on behalf of Nazanin's family to, for the last six years of her detention, to ensure that her case was highlighted. And you're quite right that the the the, the others, the other other uh, dual British nationals who were detained, certainly didn't get as much media coverage as Nazanin. But we're certainly very happy to see that at least two of the British nationals have been released and we remain very concerned that Murad still remains unable to leave Iran now. Um, I mean, we have made very, very clear that these arbitrary detention and should not continue. Of course, Nazneen's husband, Richard, was a brilliant um, media performer on TV studios, radio studios. He also did the hunger strike too. Uh, and of course, it, there was political kudos for who, whichever foreign secretary got her out. And Liz Trusk, fair play to her, she it was on her watch. What pressure now, though, um, Yasmin, can the British government apply to get this third person out? They've paid the £400 million, which had been owed since the 1970s for a chieftain tank contract, which wasn't fulfilled. What can they do now? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think, I mean, I think ongoing negotiations with respect to Murad are going to also involve the US because he's also a US national. So I imagine that there are going to be conversations that continue with the Iranian government, the British government and uh, the US government to push for his uh, for his release as soon as possible. Um, but certainly something that needs to be very, very clear and continue to be made very clear by Liz Truss is that it is totally unacceptable for the Iranian government to be using uh, these civilians, these citizens, as bargaining chips in their geopolitical wars. They effectively, in my view, they they kidnap Nazneen. Would you agree with that? Well, certainly. I mean, it certainly equates to kidnapping someone. I mean, she's been unlawfully detained 
for six years subject to solitary confinement uh, and, and treatment that's inhumane and degrading. Um, so certainly it, it is akin to kidnapping. They have held her uh, with no lawful basis subject to her to and to the other British nationals to, to appalling treatment. And, you know, essentially whatever disputes there are between states, uh, civilians and citizens should not be used as bargaining chips. It's never the appropriate action. And I mean, the, the British government have been clear and it's good that they have finally found a way through. Uh, but no matter what the political circumstances are, uh, citizens should never, ever be used in this way. Some people are saying, I mean, the government deny it, but they're saying the £400 million was effectively a ransom and governments sh- shouldn't pay ransoms to kidnappers. But the government can argue, can't they, that the money was a debt which had been outstanding for best part of 40 years. So they were merely honouring the debt. But why did it take them so long to pay it? Yeah, I mean, for, from Human Rights Watch's perspective and what we have said from the very beginning is that no matter what happens between states and them, whether they honour or they don't honour agreements, people uh, and citizens and people who are not only citizens but people who are in any country should not be ever subject to human rights violations, no matter what. And so for us, really, it's, it's taking it outside of the context of this state dispute and saying that no one should be kept, as you said, effectively hostage until the states can agree on a way forward. Uh, that was Yasmin Ahmed, who's UK Director of Human Rights Watch, and there'll be plenty to read about Nazanin in the Daily Mail tomorrow and on Mail Plus. So thanks for joining us. So there are fears that the unprecedented sanctions placed upon Russia by the West from the United States, European Union to Britain could be undermined by China. Beijing is thought to be contemplating providing economic and financial support to Russia and potentially sending military supplies and weapons such as armed drones to aid Vladimir Putin's faltering war effort. China has never condemned Russia's invasion, but has now been called upon to do so by NATO General Secretary Jen Stoltenberg. Well, joining me to talk about this is Sophia Gaston, director of the British Foreign Policy Group. Sophia, China's almost like the beast that didn't roar. It said nothing so far, but if they were to come to Putin's aid, that could extend the war in Ukraine, and it could also mean, presumably, depending on the, the weaponry that are provided, they he, they can cause even more mass destruction in the country. I think certainly uh, the relationship between China and Russia has obviously predated this crisis, and it's been building and evolving in pretty interesting ways and and some pretty alarming ways as well over recent years and months. Um, Certainly the meeting between President Xi and President Putin in Beijing during the Olympics last month was a very significant step. They released a joint international relations pact on the back of that with, um, I think, you know, some concerning not just sort of tangible initiatives that sprung out of that, but the sort of alignment of narratives coming together in a way that we haven't seen before. So I think the relationship, which has been quite sort of scatterbrained and and sort of piecemeal in some respects, more substantive in others, um, is starting to move forward in quite meaningful ways. It is also true, though, that China has very distinct interests from Russia in the crisis in Ukraine, and certainly its behavior in the sort of immediate days and weeks after the 
invasion um, wasn't necessarily following the Russian rule book uh, down to a T. So I think it's important to note those areas where it has sort of diverged from the Russian position as well. What of the line from the NATO General Secretary, Sophia, that um, China um, being a member of the United Nations Security Council has an obligation to support and uphold international law And as he points out, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is clearly a blatant violation of international law. I absolutely agree that it's a blatant violation of international law. And obviously, it's extremely concerning. And we want all members of the international community to be standing up and and defending that liberal order, which we all benefit from every day. But I think it's also fair to say that China is fundamentally protecting its own interests here. And it takes a rather different approach than we do on these sorts of things, insofar as It tends to want to engage with the international world order and and adhere to the kind of norms and conventions that that prescribes um, only really when it feels that it fundamentally suits their own interests. And I think in this respect, I, I think China is sort of aware that it holds a few cards in this and it knows that by sort of holding back, certainly not falling in line behind a Western led opposition to the war as they would see it i think they feel that perhaps they're maximizing their own leverage yeah um and just finally sophia is there anything the west can do that i mean nato have appealed to china to do the right thing but does china care what nato thinks i think that china does care about the concept of the international community and it's aware that its own economic interests are in many ways protected by this idea of a kind of stable and secure world order. And certainly it's very concerned with its international image, particularly in the aftermath of the coronavirus pandemic, um, because that image is important for its capacity to you know, strike new deals and investments around the world. And all of that comes back fundamentally to this pact that the Chinese Communist Party have with has with its citizens around continuous economic growth. So I think to some extent, you know, China recognizes that sometimes there's a system there which it benefits from and wants to play in and will uh, like to make the case that it's a you know good international citizen, um, even though we may uh, raise our eyebrows at that in the West. Um, but there are other areas in which it's very happy to pursue its own path. And I think what we have seen under President Xi, particularly over the last couple of years, is China seeking to um, forge its own kind of challenge to that um, default structure of the world order, which of course was built, um, you know, by Western powers uh, and to support Western values, but also Western interests. And China has started thinking about its own size and its capacity to bring others on board and sort of forge new uh, spheres of influence and power. And that all comes back to its interest in Russia. Russia is, you know, something that is a huge country. It's it's resource rich. China's very aware of that. You know, it's a country in its own neighborhood, but it's also a country that has sort of sovereign territorial claims 
to various kind of, not just existing resources, but potential new ones, particularly in places like the Arctic. So I think China is playing a much longer game here. Um, they will uh, reinforce and back the idea of world order when they feel it's uh, in their interest, but they're also looking to shake things up. And I think, you know, we in the West need to be very attuned to that. That's Sophia Gaston, who's director of the British Foreign Policy Group. Thanks so much for joining us. So Vladimir Putin has called for a self-purification to rid his country of anyone who questions his invasion of Ukraine. Putin went on TV on Wednesday to excoriate Russians who did not back him in the attack, blaming NATO nations for using instigators to stir up opposition to the war. I'm joined now to discuss that by Edward Lucas, non-resident senior fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis. He's also the author of Deception, Spies, Lies and How Russia duped the West. Um, Edward, uh, it struck me uh, the, the calm, measured performance of President Zelensky, whether he was addressing the House of Commons or addressing both houses in, in the United States, how calm and measured and charismatic he was. And yet Putin seemed to me to be mad, raging, eyes bulging, threatening. It reeked of desperation. I think you're absolutely right, Andrew, and Volodymyr Zelensky has become, in a way, the leader of the free world at a time when some of the people who should be leading it seem to have their feet in their mouth or um, not saying anything at all. And he is saying things with a kind of crystalline moral clarity that we haven't really heard since the days of Václav Havel and the um, revolutions in Eastern Europe in 1989. The Americans have a saying, it's not the size of the dog in the fight that counts, it's the size of the fight in the dog. And wow, is there a lot of fight in that Ukrainian dog, although it's outnumbered. And just contrast that with the snarling, paranoid, vengeful, slightly bonkers tone taken by Vladimir Putin, who leads a country which is supposed to be a superpower, a nuclear superpower, the largest in the world by land area, member of the permanent member of the UN Security Council, and sounding like a tin-pot dictator. And what was he, when he criticised those with villas in Miami or the French Riviera who can't get by without oysters or foie gras, was he talking about his oligarch mates, who, um, many of whom have been sanctioned now? Absolutely. He's talking about all this class of what one might call global Russians who make their money in Russia from a mixture of um, bribe collecting and um, other forms of stealing, particularly from the natural resource industries and then enjoy themselves in the West, whether it's with yachts or football clubs or mansions or anything else. And he's served notice on them before, but this is a really serious warning. Um, the previous warnings have said, bring your money back to Russia when we need it. This is saying, get back here or we'll count you as a traitor. It's coming from him because there are reports, albeit that it's difficult to know how true they are, that Putin has amassed a fortune of billions of pounds, if not tens of billions of pounds. He has indeed got that reputation as being the man at the centre of an absolutely enormous property empire. Some people say he may be the richest man in the world, but in a way it doesn't mean anything. If you can't go abroad to spend your money, um, you can have everything you want in Russia, but the difference between a, a million, a billion and a trillion actually is just noughts on the page. It doesn't affect the fact that he can't sleep at night because his war in Ukraine has gone terribly badly and he's running out of options. And do we conclude from the uh, the TV address, Edward, that, it, that he is losing and he was 
uh, venting his spleen in public because, well, if not losing might not be the right expression, he's not winning. He's very frustrated because he thought there would be a quick victory. He made the terrible mistake that often happens to people in positions of authority is they start believing their own propaganda and nobody likes to contradict them or interrupt them or disobey them. And all the institutions and processes in Russia that might have corrected this mistake have been destroyed over the last 20 years by by Putin. So we have this personality cult and the responsibility rests on him. And although he may believe that eventually he'll win, it's clearly not the quick, clean victory he wants. The Chinese are breathing down his neck saying, we don't like this, get it over with quick. And his army's in a mess and his only way out is to escalate. Now, we've been worried about escalation of chemical or maybe even nuclear weapons, and that may come. But for now, his escalation is to lash out at the rich Russians and tell them, get back here, put your money at my service, I need you. Yeah, I can't see them rushing back. Can you, in their yachts, which many of which are moored in, on the French Riviera, I can't see them rushing back to to Russia anytime soon because I don't suppose they trust Mr. Putin. No, but on the other hand, life abroad isn't very nice either. So you've got a set question, you know, you stay abroad, get sanctioned and called a traitor, or you go back and take what's coming to you in Russia. And I think that they are among many people who thought they had a wonderful gilded lifestyle and everything was going their way. And suddenly it's all turned to ashes. I think it's also worth noting that their bankers and lawyers and accountants are sweating a bit now. They pinstriped accomplices of this enormous looting spree who had those wonderful first-class seats on the Caviar Express and are now hurriedly saying, what, us, Russia, clients? No, never, surely not. Really fascinating, Edward. You always present it so well. That's Edward Lucas. He's non-resident senior fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis and author of Deception, Spies, Lies and How Russia Duped the West. Thanks for joining us. So a quarter of us now worry about money every single day, according to a major new report. The annual State of Wellbeing report has revealed that 12 million British workers are grappling with serious financial insecurity, and they say it's their biggest concern. And that's, of course, before the full-blown cost-of-living crisis hits when fuel prices go through the roof in April. Joining me now is Peter Briffitt, who's Chief Executive and Co-Founder of Wagestream, the company behind the report. Peter, the interest rates have gone up again today too. Uh, is this report reflecting the fact that people fear what's coming in the next few months and years with soaring fuel prices and soaring food prices, partly, of course, caused by the war with Ukraine and Russia? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's happening now, Andrew, in real time. You've, you know, I'm sure whoever filled up their tank in the last week will have noticed um, it's it's vastly more expensive than it was even a few weeks ago, but what we're dealing with, you know, it's a huge wave in the sort of cost of living crisis, um, which is going to impact, you know, the vast majority of the UK working population. And certainly, you know, the users that we serve with frontline workers, lower income workers, the proportion of their paycheck, which is now going to get taken up with increased costs just on basic food, fuel, utility bills is, is going gonna, is gonna to have a really negative impact on their financial health. So it's definitely a crisis we're, we're experiencing now in real time, but it's, get, it's only going to get worse in the next six months, I'm afraid. And, and it's a huge rise in the number of people telling your researchers how worried they are about money. It's changed a lot since this time last year. And of course, we have now emerged from COVID, which you might have thought might have um, made people feel more emboldened and more confident. 
Yes, well, I mean, there was certainly COVID, you know, depending on your sort of the demographic and your, your sort of where, where you sat in the income levels, it did have a, a positive impact on people's savings. But the reality of life in the UK is 55% of UK families don't have £200 in savings. So, you know, a financial shock like the cost of living crisis, but even an unplanned expense between pay cycles can have a negative impact on their financial health, certainly if they're not able to access fair financial services. And we know that banks historically haven't been great at servicing, you know, individual needs when they see someone as a lower income or high risk. If you're a shift worker, you generally don't get access to sort of fair financial services. So we're certainly seeing um, a lot, you know, a, a large amount of employees starting to worry more and more about financial health. And we believe um, that employers can play a part in, in helping their, their staff alleviate some of those issues. Um, one of the big things we do um, over here is flexible pay and allowing people to access their earnings, allowing people to save for the first time. And I think an employer can play a big part in how they look after someone's financial life because at the end of the day, British employers in many cases are the biggest um, and most positive financial institution in people's lives because they actually pay people as opposed to every other financial bank that is normally trying to take from people. Do you think this time next year, Peter, we'll be talking about an even bigger increase in the number of people worrying about money because of the impact of the war? Yeah, I think absolutely. We've seen almost a 10% increase from last year. That One of the biggest driving factors is is, is the, just the cost of living. In real time, we're seeing goods and services, basic items um, go up, and that's set to get worse. I think inflation is here to stay quite a while um the issue is wage inflation isn't going up at the same rate that you know the cost of living crisis is coming so there's going to be you know a larger portion of you know a larger percentage of people's paychecks will be spent just on what they used to do last year for less money if that makes sense um and that leaves them less to to, to deal with during a during a pay cycle and again we're not a we're, we're not a nation of savers in britain um, most people live paycheck to paycheck um, and the, what their paycheck is worth at the end, even after four weeks at the moment, is less than what it was four weeks before. So it, it's, an, it's a crisis coming um, and we're hoping that you know, employers will, 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 will start to think about how they can help their staff and how they can either use technology or tools to allow their staff to have better financial outcomes. And just finally on that, um, Peter, of course, recently the Money and Pension Services revealed around 11 million people have less than £100 to fall back on, which bears out your point. We're not a nation of savers. So it means there's no safety net for many millions of families. There's no safety net. And, um, and that's the big issue. And, that, you know, the more you're spending on, on basic items, the, the less that, you know, your ability to take care of an unplanned expense between pay cycles. And we all, you know, remember the, you know, the, the, the payday loan issues that happened, you know, started about 10 years ago and, and people falling into the hands of those predatory lenders is the worst possible type of thing that can happen in someone's financial life. Um, so, you know, we've got a number of employees we work with now from Booper to co-op that are allowing their staff to access their earnings in, as they earn them in order to take care of some of these unplanned expenses. If you think about uh, what you just said around the majority of the working population, or 11 million people with less than £100 in savings, in many cases, their biggest asset is their unpaid wages that are, in most cases in the UK are paid monthly. So giving people liquidity back and access to those is, is, is one way of preventing them falling into debt cycles um, as a result of, you know, waiting four weeks to get paid. I mean, if I'm, a, if I'm a nurse now that works in the NHS, I do an overtime shift today, I won't get that money until the end of April. Well, that's a huge amount of time to wait. 
um, for, for the work I've done and the financial reward I get. So I think a lot of employers are figuring out how they can be more flexible around pay and building sort of financial tools on top of pay to help their staff. That's Peter Briffick, Chief Executive and Co-Founder of WageStream, which has done this big report, the annual State of Wellbeing report. So that's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app every weekday at 5pm. You can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. (laughs) 